According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Everybody take a deep breath. There you go. Episode 56 is the conclusion to the Galilean ministry. We have been in the Galilean ministry longer than the Galilean ministry actually was. Uh, the ministry itself was only about two years worth of time in the three and a half year ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, of course, Jesus Christ had the advantage of ministering day by day by day by day, and, and we've been limited to once a week. So, uh, yeah, the, the three-year study that has been the Galilean ministry is uh, uh, has been very interesting. So we will be in this final episode today, and if we can jump on it hard enough, we can even wrap it up in a single session. I, I I hesitate even saying that because we'll probably spend the next 15 sessions on this episode and you'll look back and say, why did you think we could do this in a single hour? Well, I can I can run through five points in 20 minutes, you know, hit it before 1030 and, and call it good. But the one motivation to doing it in a single session is that we have next week off. Uh, next week is the Schaefer Theological Seminary Conference. Uh, we will be in Houston. Uh, so ladies, of course, are still welcome to pray if you're in town and want to Meet for prayer. Best to call it off. Okay. And so uh, La Rosa will be covering the evening service for us next week, next Wednesday night. And looking forward to that. But there will not be a Wednesday morning Life of Christ class. All right. Turn to Luke chapter 9 then. There is a parallel text in Matthew 8, 18 through 22. But the longer text or the more complete reading comes out of Luke 9, 57 through 62. We'll bring in the Matthew information uh, as necessary, but we'll basically be uh, in the Gospel of Luke for this episode. The cost of discipleship. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, giving each believer priest opportunity to make the necessary adjustments before his authority. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for this new day you've set before us and for the mercies, the renewed mercies, which again testify to your faithfulness each and every day. Father, we thank you for the ministry of your word and the privilege we have to study, to show ourselves approved. And we ask that uh, distractions can be set aside. We ask that uh, other uh, obstacles, Father, might be cleared away. Maybe they're not distractions, but they may be uh, other influences and outside factors that would diminish from our concentration. So, Father, set those all aside and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, the cost of discipleship. Let's read through it and then we'll uh, get our points of study. Reading from Luke 9:57, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. Another I will statement. I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. 
But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. All right, so that's verses 57 through 62. This message, point one in the outline, this episode features three follower candidates. Or if you want to call them candidate followers, you can uh, reverse your adjective and your noun there. This episode features three follower candidates or candidate followers, whichever way you prefer to think of it. Three would-be acolytes, three individuals that declare that, you know, they would like to be followers of Jesus, only so far as, obviously, it fits into everything else they have going on, see, And we'll talk about that. We are actually going to define each of them for you because I think all three together paint a picture that really spells out the nature of uh, convenient Christianity to where so long as it's convenient, we'll we'll observe some of the practices and the culture and and situations. But, you know, if it starts to become inconvenient, then obviously we can modify our beliefs and our principles and our views and, and things like that. Um, if if such is the nature of the Christian way of life, where you are compromising for convenience, this uh, episode will highlight some things. All right, now who are these three followers? I just give them little titles here. And uh, I give them to you in our point one, and then I don't really refer to them by these names in the subsequent points, but perhaps I'll do that verbally. First of all, the uncalled volunteer. As we read these verses and as we go through our study, keep in mind that that uh, candidate number one here is an uncalled volunteer. Nobody asked him. He just showed up. All right. If you if you spot it uh, to the number two guy in verse 59, Jesus Christ actually calls him. Jesus Christ actually says, follow me. In a, in a calling or a choosing or an election of the choice of Jesus Christ, he extends the invitation to follow me, which, of course, is always pr- provided on an invitational basis uh, and re- requiring a, a volitional response, requiring either obedience or disobedience on the part of the one who is so invited. And so number two guy gets invited, follow me, and he's got to hang up, he's got to deal with that. And then number three um, is not commanded to follow, but he, again, just like number uh, number one, uh, would like to be a follower, but he doesn't have the command issued to him, at least in this verse, and we'll talk about that. I think he was a previously called individual. So we start off with the uncalled volunteer, and this is just a guy that just shows up out of the blue and says, I will follow you wherever you go, or I will accompany you as you go stressing the present uh, nature of the ministry of Jesus Christ, who was even, in the context of this passage, en route to, uh, to Jerusalem. So I call the first guy the uncalled volunteer. The second guy, under subpoint B, I call him, or I refer to him, as the called procrastinator. As the called procrastinator. And this is the one who actually has the verbal invitation uttered in this passage. Number one, has no such invitation. Number three, we can, we can presume had received an invitation in the past, although we don't have it spelled out explicitly here in this text. So the uncalled volunteer is followed by the called procrastinator. This guy actually is called. He is invited. 
But he has other things that he wants to take care of first. And so we're going to address that. The called procrastinator. And some of this I'm not going to plunge into a full doctrinal study on election and calling and some of these concepts. Many are called, we're told, but few are chosen. There is a difference between the calling and the choice. In any event, the calling here where he says, follow me. And yet, well, I want to take care of something else first. Permit me first. Now, guy number three has the same language in terms of permit me first. He says, but first permit me. And uh, But there is a difference between character number two and character number three, chief of which I believe is that uh, disciple number three actually had previously been called and had already started to work. That's the indication of verse 62. No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So he actually had gotten started. Let me put number three guy up here then under subpoint C. I call him the called hindsighter. The called hindsider. You may be dubious that hindsider is actually a word. Don't be dubious. It may not be a word found in the standard dictionary, but it still is a word. It's comprised of letters, and you see it on the screen. So it's a word. In other words, this is the guy that's always looking back. This is the guy that's always looking back, even though we're commanded to forget what lies behind and we're commanded to reach forward, that we might lay hold of that for which also we were laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The Christian way of life is forward-oriented, forward-oriented, meaning we don't look back and dwell on things in the past. We learn from the past. We'd be absolute fools if we ignored past mistakes and act like they never happened. We, we have to acknowledge that they did happen, and we have to grow through that and, and learn from that so we don't repeat the, the, the idiot things we did back in the day. But we don't dwell on it with a, with a wistful longing for days gone by. So I call this guy the called hindsider. The called hindsider. I'm going to spell it out for you under point five. We don't see the call here, I believe, He's not commanded to follow me in this passage because he had previously been the recipient of a follow me message and had indeed put his hand to the plow. He had indeed been obedient to the follow me message. But at this point, he gets influenced by the procrastinator, uh, you know, guy number two, starts becoming influenced by guy number two and starts to rethink a choice that he had made and starts to regret a choice that he had made. All of that will come up in the subpoint. So if that all is clear, then you can go ahead and leave now. We, uh, this is what we're going to cover. <laughs> we're going to cover these three guys. There's actually quite a bit of detail to it. Let's start with point two then with uh, guy number one. Luke doesn't tell us that he's a scribe, but if you turn over to Matthew, in Matthew 8:19, we're told that he's a grammatus. He is a scribe. He is a scribe, meaning that he is the literate professional type who was trained in order to copy uh, spiritual texts. They were actually trained to copy uh, scrolls of uh, the Word of God and other related documents. They were trained to copy them. They didn't have, uh, you know, kinkos up the street or they didn't have uh, modern day typesetting and, and printing presses and any of that. If you wanted a copy of a manuscript, that you, you employed a scribe. Uh, 
to make you a copy of whatever it was you wanted, usually at tremendous expense. Because you had to pay the scribe's salary, his living conditions, and everything else for the length of time necessary to produce the work you wanted to produce. Luke doesn't tell us he's a scribe, so that's one of the details we bring out of Matthew. In fact, it's one of the only details that we pull out of Matthew, unique to Matthew, not contained in Luke. As I said, the bulk of our study will come out of Luke. And he expressed his unconditional willingness to follow Christ. Unconditional. He makes a blanket statement. Both in Matthew 18 and in Luke 9:57, identical terminology. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I will follow you wherever you go. Blanket statement. Unconditional willingness. He doesn't put any conditions on it. He doesn't say, you know, in any particular limits or to any extent or for anything. Just wherever you go. That's where I'm going to go. It's a future active indicative of akalutheo, A-K-O-L-U. I'm sorry, L-O-U. You see it on the screen. A-K-O-L-O-U-T-H-E-O. Akalutheo. Number 190. I was going to bring up, let me... Get the software running. Show you some of the etymology of the term. To accompany, to go along with, or to follow. And it really has, has a number of different senses to it, but you can think of them as two predominant aspects, one of which is where it's live in progress and you are a contemporary accompanying. In other words, a side-by-side aspect. The other one is where you were coming along after and you were following in terms of time or space, as it were. So uh, you can the verb actually can encompass both activities. See, if uh, if you and I together leave here and go wherever, okay, to a place I may typically go to when I leave this building. All right. And you happen to accompany me over there to the remote campus location on, on Burnett Road. Well, then you would akalutheo. You would, you would follow, even though you're following simultaneously. You're following at the same time. You're following contemporaneously. Uh, you're, you're accompanying, but you're really following because it's somebody else's motivation for you to, uh, to, join, them, to join with them. Okay? You know, it's like your wife takes you to the symphony. You know, and there's, there's really about 344 other things you'd rather do. However, she wants to, and so you accompany her. Meaning, you akalutheo, you follow, because it truly is her motivation, not yours. But you do. You would use the exact same word, though, if it was a literal following. In other words, if, if I went to a location, got done there, left, and then you went the next day. See, or rulers in a sequence, or pastors in a sequence. See, Macmillan was followed by Dorman, was followed by Braun, was followed by Bolander. In that case, we use follow in time after. Okay, what I'm trying to say is that follow can be at the same time; it doesn't have to be after. And uh, we tend to separate them out. We say we dif- we differentiate in English. We would say, well, if it's after, let's use the word follow, right? I followed Ralph as the pastor of this church. 
But if it was contemporary, then we would use the word accompanied, right? Or we use the word, you know, something about together. And so in English, we would differentiate with different terms so that we had more precision, we'd have more clarity. Akalutheo, though, can be used in either realm, either for accompanying or for following after in time or direction. So, which I was going to highlight for you here. Just have to learn how to type in Greek. There we are. Adjust the text size for back row viewing. All right, akalutheo in its various forms, imperative, imperfect, future, aorist, the different inflections that can be found. It is uh, from akaluthos, the adjective akaluthos used as early as Thucydides, Aristophanes, and others. Of course, everyone in this room has read Thucydides. You have to. Okay. Peloponnesian Wars? Is that? Okay, good. If you have to, the English translations are fine. Um, Aristophanes, like I say, other pagan writers. Literally, it has a literal uh, rendering to move behind someone in the same direction. In other words, to follow, to come after, used spatially or directionally. Um you know, they, they were all in here voting yesterday and they followed one another through the long line that wound its way around the room and to the front, to the back, and to the front, and the back, and then over there to the booths and then on out the doors. They were following, they were akalutheoing the person in front of them as they worked their way through the line. And so there's <clears throat> some of the examples that we have there of that, many scriptural examples of that. But then um, in the second broad category of, of usage, this is the one I mentioned where it's not after in direction or time, but actually contemporaneous activity to follow or accompany someone who takes the lead. And so we use accompany, go along with, uh, often of the crowd following Jesus. I guess we, we use the same idea in terms of dancing, right? You have a, a leader and a follower in, the, in dancing. You know, it's not like the man is dancing at, at 8 o'clock and then the woman follows at 9 o'clock, you know, but she follows the lead of the... Okay, so there's a good way we do it in English. Use the, the idea where you can follow at the same time. To take the lead, accompany, or to go along with. All right. Now this, this becomes important because I, I don't know that we would ever express it. I don't know that it would ever come across in our thinking. But there is a, a, an aspect, I think, in a lot of believers where they can sing a hymn like, Where He Leads, I'll Follow. Right? Where he leads, I will follow. And the idea of will follow is vaguely future. Right? And we lose sight of the, of the imminency or the daily present application. Where he presently, continuously, right now is leading me, I am presently right now in the act of accompanying, following. And it's not just a someday. All right? And so these are the passages where akalutheo really has a, uh, an accompaniment aspect, including Matthew 4.25, Matthew 8.1, and uh, a string of these. And you see the references that are there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. <coughs> Again, Thucydides reference there, uh, some of the other ones. 
Ah, and then uh, an aspect that actually brings in a Hebrew idiom, the way that the Greek is used Hebraistically by uh, incorporating some of the uh, idiom that would be found in the Old Testament. We talked about that last week, too, where you, you get up and depart, or somebody arose and depart, or to follow after, and, and things like that. <clears throat> it does, though, have a figurative meaning, where rather than physically joining anybody, or rather than traveling, or rather than you use it metaphorically, and that means you are conducting your life after the example of somebody else. See, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. You conduct your life after the pattern of Jesus Christ. Or you're a follower of whoever. And you've dedicated your life to their teachings or to their examples. And sadly, of course, our culture sets up all kinds of poor examples to follow. And they become role models for kids and for the next generation. They want to become followers of some pop singer or some goofy idiot thing there. Why? Well, because they're cool. They're popular. And so if I follow their example, I become an acolyte, a follower. And so in some respects, uh, it it becomes a synonym with a disciple. I don't like using it as a synonym of a disciple. Jesus gives Matthew the imperative, sitting in the tax collector booth, follow me, equals be my disciple. You know, it means follow me literally, but beyond literally, you know, tagging along behind my my skirt here. It means follow my example, become a student of mine. And so it is kind of synonymous with disciple. But don't overlook, of course, that a disciple is a learner, someone that studies, someone that grows in in, in doctrine. And then there is a extended meaning that if you follow somebody, that means you are obeying them. If you follow instructions, you are obeying. There's an obedient aspect to the term akalutheo. And it looks like I'm glancing at some apocryphal uh, references there. Second Maccabees, Judith, and other books that you probably read as frequently as you read Thucydides. Um, ah, even First Clement 40 and verse 4. There's a good church father we can look at. Because we can read it both in the English and in the Greek. Those, therefore, who make their offerings at the appointed times are acceptable and blessed. For those who follow the instructions of the Master cannot go wrong. There's a, not a Bible verse, but it's a quote from a church father. Those who follow the instructions of the Master cannot go wrong. Clement of Rome, 1st century A.D. All right. Like I say, not a Bible verse. It's not God-breathed and inspired, but it is, uh, may not be inspired, but some of it is rather inspirational. And then the fifth and final use is to actually follow somebody in sequence, to come after somebody in time. All right. Um, I think the rest of this I'm just going to skip over. This is the noun form of it. The akaluthos refers to a person who does the following or a thing that is followed. Yeah. But we'll let that go for now. Okay, enough on that. Now, sub-point A. As a first-person singular, future active indicative. You say, what do I care? What's a first-person singular, future active indicative? That's what this is. As a first-person singular, future active indicative, this statement is an I will statement. I will. 
follow you. I will follow you. Any first person singular future active indicative is an I will statement. And as such, it becomes noteworthy in the scripture. It's noteworthy because it reflects the covenant language, the unconditional covenant language of our Lord. And every unconditional covenant promise he ever makes, it is phrased in the terms, I will. When he makes his unconditional covenant promises to Abraham, it is I will. The language of I will. I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will as the language is the unconditional language of God's own veracity. It's also, of course, the language of the adversary's rebellion with his five I wills in Isaiah chapter 14. So we're going to outline that for you. When we make statements such as I will, we want to be cautious. We want to evaluate our motivation for what we say and why we say it. So that makes this an I will statement. An I will statement may, I'm not saying this one here is, but it may be, an I will statement may be a self-exalting diabolical rebellion. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. You've got a pentagram of I wills in that one passage. An I will statement may be a self-exalting diabolical rebellion. See, what separates the creature from the creator is really the element that underlies all of this. That the true I will statements belong to the I am. Jehovah, Yahweh, is, is, <laughs> all right, he is. And I am is the only one who can make that statement. All, the only one that is self-existent, eternally self-existent. Now, I am, I can say that I am, but everything that I attach to the back of I am can be rephrased with I became. Right? Everything. There is not a single thing that I can declare I am with that I cannot rephrase with I became. See? I am teaching this class. <laughs> I started that 27 minutes ago. I have not been eternally teaching this class. I am a pastor. Well, rephrase that. I became a pastor. See, anything. Attach I am to anything. In the human experience, you can rephrase it to I became and pinpoint the, the commencement of that existence. God is the only unique, non-created, self-existent, eternally State of being, I am. And as the I am, he can make the eternal I will statements. And when the adversary in Isaiah 14 starts spouting his, uh, spouting his uh, lips here, the Lucifer lips or whatever you want to call them, the I don't like the name Lucifer. That's just a Vulgate rendering anyway. Halel ben Shachar is the Hebrew. 
Halel ben Shachar. How you have fallen from heaven, Halel ben Shachar. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will. And there's five of them. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And uh, if you review the Arnold Fruchtenbaum conference, he took you through, took us through all five of these. Now, I'm not saying that was the case here for potential disciple number one, but we have to examine it. Secondly, or thirdly, point C, an I will statement may be a prideful disregard for the plan of God. An I will statement may be a prideful disregard for the plan of God. What have we been learning in James 4? On Sunday nights, Mr. Beveridge teaching James 4, 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Your boasting is not good. It says, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All boasting is evil. I will statements, even if they're not demonic, even if they're not satanic, self-exalting, diabolical rebellion, they may just simply be expressions of human carnality. You might not be following uh, the uh, teachings of demons. You may not be following satanic influences. It might just be coming from your own carnal nature, the sin nature that dwells within you. Prideful disregard for the plan of God. This guy walks up, says, hey, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus didn't call him. Jesus did not call the man. And if he was going to be, you know, blunt about it, as, you know, I would or many of us would, like, well, who do you think you are? Right? Didn't call you. Don't want you. Don't need you. Remember, Jesus Christ was doing everything according to the will of God the Father. If God the Father wanted that man to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, God the Father would have directed that and Jesus would have obeyed that. So whoever this guy was, all right, wasn't called by the Father, directed by the Father and called by Jesus Christ. He just shows up and says, hey, I'm going to be one of your followers. All right. Well, was that a self-exalting diabolical rebellion or was that uh, a prideful disregard for the plan of God? Saying, well, I don't care what the will of God is. This is what I'm going to do. Right? And there's a whole lot of people, they crusade, they get involved doing stuff, saying, hey, we're serving the Lord. Really? Well, who called you to do that? Are you serving the Lord or are you serving yourself? So we want to be cautious. You know, if this, if this man really wanted to rephrase it and really wanted to express divine viewpoint, he could have come and said, we could read verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, Sir, Lord, if it could be the will of your Father, may I follow you? See. But too many uh, believers are too uh, interested in uh, 
telling God what their will is for their life and not asking God what his will is for their life. Fourthly, point D, an I will statement may be followed by regrets. An I will statement may be followed by regrets. This actually takes us to a follow-up message. It is another cost of discipleship message, but it comes later in the ministry of Jesus Christ. We read about it in Luke 14. It is a similar context. I mean, it is a similar theme of ministry because it uh, addresses the cost of discipleship, but he teaches it in a little different way, and I think it's pretty vivid the way he teaches it here in Luke 14. So turn over there to Luke 14. It's a longer uh, context. We're kind of going to zero in on 28 through 30, but the overall, uh, the larger uh, pericope actually begins in verse 25 and takes you down through the end of the chapter. Large crowds were going along with him. Keep in mind that large crowds are not always uh, the will of God. They're not always the Father promoting the large crowds. They could be large crowds of adversaries. And he says, if anyone uh, comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, you know, when it's interesting. When the Lord returns to themes he taught on previously, it seems like when he comes back to something that it, they didn't get the first time, it's going to be a little bit harder the next time he comes back. The language is going to be a little bit more severe. This is what's called the language of extreme, to make the point. And had they gotten it back in chapter 9, he wouldn't have to be so extreme here, but he carries the language to an extreme in order to communicate. Who does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Come after me. There you got the, the uh, aspect of following that we're talking about. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? You, you should consider the cost. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. They bit off more than you can chew. You did not realize what it was going to cost when you started the whole, you thought it was going to be a, a, a walk in the park. You thought it would be simple. Now you've got regrets. So an I will statement may be followed by regrets. All right, point three. And here is the stumbling block that we read about. Here is the stumbling block that we read about. Back to Luke 9 now, verse 58. Here is the uninvited uh, disciple. I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Does that seem disconnected? It isn't, it isn't. And that's the reason why Jesus approached him on this. Because he says, hey, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus doesn't say, great, welcome aboard. He doesn't say, nope, forget it, you can't follow. He doesn't address the man whatsoever. He simply starts making a statement. Speaking to the universe or, you know, speaking in general. 
offering up one of these Shakespearean soliloquies. There's so much truth in this. All right? And in some ways, it's actually a remarkable device. It's a, it's a way to rebuke somebody. Obviously, the man is the recipient of this message. But because he's not directly addressing it to him, he's just simply making the statement in general in a third-person, anonymous kind of way. The man can uh, have time to think about it and consider what he's doing and, and probably go crawling off in, uh, in shame. So Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And the principle is this, point three, temporal life impoverishment. Temporal life impoverishment is a stumbling block for certain followers. Not everybody, but for certain followers it is. And evidently, for this man, it is. Because this is the message that this man Receives. This guy did not receive the hand of the plow looking back message. That was saved for guy number three. All right. So Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He said he's, hope, he's homeless. Why are you wanting to follow me anyway? Examine the motivations. Point A, loss of possessions and homelessness may be the perfect will of God the Father for the believer's life. If you cannot accept that statement, I urge you to reevaluate your divine viewpoint perspective. If, uh, if your concept of 21st century American prosperous Christianity is such that this statement is an issue, chew on it. Loss of possessions, again, this is point A, loss of possessions and homelessness may be the perfect will of God the Father for the believer's life. Jesus Christ was homeless. He relocated. We know some of the background. We know that he relocated away from Nazareth. We know that he relocated his mother, his brothers, out of Nazareth. They, they settled in Capernaum. It's not clear what the arrangements were for where they stayed in Capernaum. If they uh, had, it may be that, that he was able to afford a place for his mom, and, but it wasn't his, it was hers. Or it may be that they were in rented quarters of some sort. We know that on the cross, he had to entrust his mother to John. He was not going to leave her in the hands of unbelieving brothers. And he entrusted uh, Mary to John, the, the apostle, where he said, Behold your mother, behold your son, and so forth. Even though she had four sons of her own, he was not going to leave her in the hands of, of those unbelieving brothers. Say, so, you know what? They might be your earthly sons, but they are on the road to hell, and, and they're not going to take care of you. And he handed his mother to the Apostle John. So whatever their arrangements were there in Capernaum, it's not clear. We know that quite frequently his teaching took place in Peter's mother-in-law's house. We do have reference of that. I think Peter had some, uh, some assets 
fishing assets. When you look at the fleet and the the uh, multiple ships and the servants that uh, Peter and Zebedee were uh, engaged in there in that fishing uh, consortium. But the Lord didn't have any of that. No permanent dwelling, no wealth, no assets. And yet that was the perfect will of God the Father for his life. Hold your finger there. Let's remind ourselves of the principle out of John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so if Jesus Christ did not own a home, was he in the will of God or out of the will of God? He was in the will of God. Absolutely. We've got, uh, we've got this uh, idea, faulty idea, that if you're obedient to God's will, that he's going to financially uh, prosper you. That's not always the case. In fact, for Christ and the apostles, it was not the case. The apostles followed the example of Christ in this regard. That's point B. The apostles followed the example of Christ in this regard. Paul speaking rather autobiographically, but he is including apostleship in the uh, presentation of this in 1 Corinthians 4.11. I think it's a larger essay on apostleship in general, more so than it is a specific uh, autobiography of Paul, although clearly it applies to Paul. But when he says in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 4.9, I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. He's speaking of apostles as a rule. The gift and ministry of apostle. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Then you'll spot it in verse 11. To this present hour, we... Speaking of himself, to be sure, to start with, but really encompassing the entire body of apostles. We are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. Welcome to the glamour of uh, apostolic ministry. I laugh sometimes when the modern-day Pentecostals come out with this idea that they're going to be apostles. There's an apostle, or so-called apostle, right over here on Burnett Road. Please. Now, <clears throat> in any event, temporal life impoverishment. Is that going to derail you? Do you follow Jesus Christ so long as uh, you got a comfort level? Money to fall back on and a home to live in and food to eat and clothes to wear? What if those things go away? What if you have some job testing? What if you lose your finances or you lose your health or you lose whatever? See, Job lost it all. Except for Mrs. Job. All right. And that probably made the test even worse. I don't know. All right. I think the adversary figured out which is worse, keeping her or taking her. And the adversary figured out pretty quick. Now I'm going to leave her right there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm just saying. I don't. I didn't write it. But when you lose the money you were counting on, 
idolatry gets exposed very quickly. 9-11 exposed a lot of idolatry in this country. Uh, a country goes into a recession or economic downturn and idolatry gets exposed because um, the currency may say in God we trust. But that's printed on the currency that truly is the God to all too many people are trusting in the, in the God of, of the dollar. And then where's their faith? So that's follower number one. Follower number two, point four. We've got two more followers here. Point four and point five. Now, oh, that's not good. Okay, my point four is, uh, is incorrect here. Let me... I'll have to read it to you because I don't have the slide. That's just disappointment. Okay. Point four should not say what you're reading there. Point four should say, Jesus turned to one who had not expressed such a willingness. Jesus turned to one who had not expressed such a willingness. In other words, he sought out someone that wasn't seeking him. Jesus turned to one who had not expressed such a willingness and commanded him to follow unconditionally. Commanded him to follow unconditionally. This might be too small to read. Is that too small to read? Oh, yeah. I can't even read that. What am I looking at? Jesus turned to one who had not expressed such a willingness and commanded him to follow unconditionally. Verses 59 and 60. See, the man didn't show up and say, hey, I want to be your follower. But Jesus turned to another and said, follow me. You see the difference there? Jesus, there you are, point four. Jesus turned to one who had not expressed such a willingness. See, this is a picture. Now, it's not a salvation application. The man was a believer to start with, but there's a picture there. Jesus isn't going to turn to an unbeliever and say, follow me uh, as, a, as a disciple. This is a call to uh, vocational discipleship. To an individual that's already in a uh, regenerate uh, condition. But we have a principle here and a concept that lays it out. It, when, when anybody gets saved, were they seeking God first? Or was God drawing him? Yeah, there's no one who seeks after righteousness. No, not one. But the world is convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the Father draws. No one comes to the Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him. And so we have a picture of that here. 
It's not a perfect picture because it's not a salvation context, but is this making sense? You see the, the uh, pattern in this. Commanded him to follow unconditionally. And he doesn't say, follow me to a certain extent or follow me under these conditions. He says, follow me unconditionally. Well, he's got a problem. Well, let me first go bury my father. Subpoint A. This man was willing to follow someday. Someday. Someday is a tremendous enemy to the Christian way of life. Got a long list of things I would like to do someday. But the fact is, or the, uh, what does Cliff say? The reality of the matter is, all right, my long list of things I'd like to do someday are totally irrelevant to the Christian way of life. Because God the Father has a plan for my life, a day by day and moment by moment plan for my life. And it's not about what I want to do someday. It's what he commands me to do this day. And am I going to be obedient or disobedient in the outworking of my Christian walk? This man was willing to follow someday. You know, it's interesting here. Permit me first to go and bury my father. The text does not tell us anything about this man and his father or whatever else is going on. And there is nothing that indicates whether the man's father is alive or dead at this point. You can kind of read into it maybe or assume that, well, you know, maybe his dad died in the last couple of days, right? And he died and, and we've got to have a funeral arrangement. We've got to do all that. There's nothing illegitimate about that. Of course, you've got to bury uh, the deceased and, and, and that. That's normal. That's natural. It's a part of daily life. But there's nothing in this passage that says that uh, that, that had already happened, that the father was already dead. In other words, I'm going to follow you someday, but for right now, right now, we've got family life that takes priority. Once my parents are gone, then okay, then I'll have more freedom. Or once the kids are grown and out of the house, then okay, then I'll have more freedom. See, Long list of things. Can't wait to do until some people uh, get kind of uh, emotional or a little sad or some kind of little regrets about having an empty nest and whatever. Okay. You know, kids are off in college and all of a sudden it's just husband and wife again. And you're like, it's kind of lonely around here. Okay. Others, though, are looking forward to it. <laughs> okay. Not that they have anything against their kids, but just saying, you know, hey going to be kind of fun. I'm going to move on. That's an illustration that kind of go in a different direction. This man is willing to follow someday. Let me, let me first bury my father. Well, you know, if I would have had that attitude in 1991 when uh, God the Father was calling me to follow Jesus Christ, that, you know, the conviction was coming, the consideration, the, the convincing and the conviction that, that, uh, that I had the pastor-teacher gift and I was to pursue the, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ as a full-time pursuit in my life. I could have thought about that in, two, in 1991 and said, okay, great, but, you know, uh, I'll do that someday, but for the time being, I just, I got to stay, I got to take care of my parents. They're a little bit older, they got some health struggles, and, uh, 
you know, the, the idea of being 2,842 miles away, you know, no, I, I need to be closer. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I know God wants me to preach, but someday. Someday. So here I'd be 17 years later, still disobeying the Word of God. But still saying, you know what? Hey, someday. Someday. Someday is an enemy. There are too many uncertainties with someday. Someday is an enemy. The uncertainties of someday turn first things into only things. When he says, let me first, it's all too easy for something that's to be done first becomes the only thing that ever is done. So I'm just, at first I'm just going to do this. And you never get past the first things. The first things become the only things. The uncertainties of someday turn first things into only things. You know, I don't mind considering, dreaming, looking ahead, thinking, whatever. And in particular, young people, you know, they they have to. That's what are they going to do when they grow up? That's that's a that's a someday because they're not there yet. They will be faster than you can keep track of. They'll be there, but for now, it's just a someday, right? And and. One of the Boy Scouts last night told me he wanted to be a brain surgeon. Said, well, good for you. That's a that's a that's a lot of school ahead of you, and that's a lot of uh, science, and that's a pretty tough line of work. But if you've got a goal at this age, that's what you want to do. And then uh, you know, if that doesn't work out, you can fall back on something else. He kind of enjoyed the the being a waiter at uh, Applebee's the other day and the the uh, fundraiser activity that they had. A fellow that Bob was working with at Applebee's, and he uh, he was doing great. Serving coffee and doing other things, and and so I said, you know, think maybe you might be a waiter at some point. He says, well, maybe, but I really would rather be a brain surgeon. <laughs> so okay, Applebee's waiter, brain surgeon, you know. But see, at this point, it's just a someday. It's just a someday. Of course, he's he's a ten year, eleven year old little kid. Okay, but someday. The problem though is that that's fine in an immaturity concept while you know you're growing up. But once you've reached the adult capacity of your Christian walk, you can't keep living in the some days. It's a day-by-day walk, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward today. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Not choose you someday, whatever you feel like getting around to. Choose, you for, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Because the uncertainties of someday can turn first things into only things. I'm going to use another illustration. Yeah, I'm not going to make it through this. Maybe I will. Uh, 1991, as I said, was when uh, the call was becoming undeniable and the consideration went to a convincing, which then became a conviction. You can't be convicted until you're convinced, but um, anyway, there's there's steps. We're going to talk about that on Sunday night. The uh, And so I was convinced and convicted and said, someday I'm going to be a pastor. I am a pastor. I need to start training. I need to be about my father's business. I need to, uh, to get trained. 
one, somehow, somewhere. We thought about Dallas Seminary. Thought about this was the first year Schaefer Seminary was getting started. Actually, it was a year ahead of Schaefer getting started. But we knew that it was in the works. So am I going to move to Dallas? I'm going to move to Los Angeles. Yuck. Am I going to, what am I going to do? Move back to Seattle? I'm going to find a school somewhere? Am I going to train in a local church? What, what am I going to do? <clears throat> but I was not the only one in 1991. And I really, I don't want to, well, I guess I will. Um, there were two others, two others, three of us, all within two or three years of each other in age. We all grew up in the same church. We all went from the nursery to the Sunday school to the prep school to the auditorium, different things. We're all within two or three years of each other. And three of us, this very same summer, said, we're going to be pastors. We're going to be pastors. All right. Two of us are still saying someday. Someday. And I'm not sharing this to be critical, and and it doesn't matter. You don't even know who they are. You don't know who I'm talking about. You've never met them. You probably won't ever. But, and and I'm not trying to criticize these men. They're going to have to answer to Jesus Christ. And I would not want to be in their position. Having put their hand to the plow. And this gets us into what we're going to deal with in two weeks. But having put their hand to the plow, and 17 years later, still saying someday. All right? Someday is a snare. And um, we want to be cautious with that. All right. The... um, There's more. Let me just wrap this up and then we'll move on. Jesus Christ contrasted the dead with their some days and the living with today's urgency for evangelism. When he says, let the dead bury their dead, what he's doing is he's taking the someday declaration of this guy and turning it around right on him. Jesus Christ contrasted the dead, spiritually dead or operationally dead. The unregenerate, of course, are spiritually dead, but even the regenerate can become operationally dead through prolonged carnality. Jesus Christ contrasted the dead with their some days and the living with today's urgency for evangelism. That's what verse 60 is all about. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. This is what he wants to do someday. Quit dwelling on the some days. Dwelling on the some days is the realm for the operationally dead or the spiritual dead. Function in today. Today is the day for ministry. Go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Forget about someday. What are you going to do someday? Forget that. What are you doing today? Are you obedient to the plan of God today? Is the armor on? Are you walking in the light? Are your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace? Are you prepared to give an account to any who would ask? So Jesus Christ contrasted the dead with their some days and the living with today's urgency for evangelism. 
It's a wonderful blessing for believers. The simplicity of purity of devotion to Christ. And I'll close with this because we're at the top of the hour. The simplicity of the purity of devotion to Christ is that we can live one day at a time. And we don't have to lose, or we, we don't lose ourselves in the some days. All right? We put someday in its proper perspective and we continue to function in today. Today. That's why we've got snares with this building project. We've got snares with the relocation. We're considering land. We're considering we've got some floor plans drawn up. We're considering, you know, what are we going to have someday? Let's be careful with that. You know, someday we may have two full-time pastors on salary. We may have an evangelist on salary. When's that going to happen? Well, it's not today. Okay. Can we... And that's what helps us from getting lost in the someday is coming back being grounded in day. Today, we're here. We're doing this. There's a Bible class to be taught. There's uh, believers that need encouraging. There's believers that need comforting. There's believers that need a kick in the butt. There's things going on, and it's going on today. So let's handle that. And then someday... When it gets here, we'll handle that. But we're living today, day by day, as long as it is called today. Thank you, Father, for this day. And we may not be back in two weeks. We may be elsewhere. You may call us home. But um, we pray that the, uh, the impact from this message might be on our minds, that you might place it in our thinking to convergence of, of daily living and the uh, snares, Father, of, of prideful I will statements and what we think we're going to do as we uh, try to uh, find realms where we're going to do great things for God and you haven't even called us to do such things. Father, uh, keep us from imitating guy number one or guy number two or guy number three. All three of these have problems. And, uh, Father, we do want to be followers of Christ, but followers at his command and followers under his leadership. So, Father, open these uh, things to our understanding. Give us the application that we might uh, be imitators of Christ. And I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.